Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you, and welcome if you are a visitor. My name is Chad. I'm pastor of this congregation. We hope you can stick around afterwards and have some morning tea with us. Um, I remember when I was uh, in my youth, um, I was reading a a Bible trivia book. Um, Had some questions, a bit like the ones that Dawson went through, but all related to the Bible. And one of the questions, or one of the trivia bits in it said, did you know that it's never recorded in the Bible that Jesus laughed? I went, oh, that's really interesting. So I went back through and well, there's passages that talk about Jesus saying rejoice and being joyful. Um, there's passages where it talks about Jesus telling us there's going to be great celebration and rejoicing in heaven. And even passages where Jesus says that he's going to change our mourning into laughter. But it's actually never recorded that Jesus laughed. And that doesn't mean that he didn't laugh. It just means that the Bible didn't speak about those things. But if you look at the same thing in the case of God, if we can just bring up our next slide, there are a number of passages that talk about God laughing. And one of the most prominent ones comes from Psalm 2. It's a Psalm of David. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. This is a passage that reminds us that, um, you know, even though this psalm goes on to say that he will rebuke and judge those nations, um, God's laughter is a way of saying it's foolishness to oppose me. What a silly thing. If you can imagine some small little bug on the footpath and some giant man with a steel-toed boot getting ready to come and squash it and the bug saying, you better not take one more step or I'll really hurt you. You think, what a silly thing to say. Just get out of the way. And this is God's way of saying it is foolishness um, to stand in the way of God and especially in regard to his salvation plans. God makes foolishness or silliness out of these things. And if we want to understand this weird story in the Bible today, we need to understand that's the kind of story it is. We don't necessarily think about the Bible as being a funny book, but some stories are meant to be funny. And I don't know how many of you are joke tellers, but if you're a good joke teller, you have to know how to tell a joke. There's a a craft to telling a joke. If you get the punchline out of order, if you don't set it up right, it doesn't work. This is an incredibly well-told story. It's a true story, but it's told like a joke. Um, It's set up just perfectly, and once you understand it and you get in on the joke, you understand what God is doing and what this story is all about. So we're going to go through this story, but first of all, we need to kind of have the background or the setup to the joke. And so if we can just have our next slide... Um, This sort of reminds us of of what's actually happening here in the story. So there you can kind of see Balaam and Balak up there in the hills and looking down on Israel. And at the beginning, Balak, who is the king of Moab, he is one of the nations um, in the promised land, one of the nations that is threatened to be dispossessed of their land. And keep in mind that 40 years ago, because now the Israelites have been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And why did that happen? Because they sent spies into the land and they said, these people are too big. 
They're too powerful. They're too strong. They will devour us. And so God makes them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But now that generation is dying off. Miriam has died and Aaron has died. And they're on the outskirts of the land once again. And guess what? The nations are looking down at Israel and they're going, these people are really big. They're really powerful. They're really scary. They're going to devour us. You see the irony? (laughs) These are the same people that terrified the Israelites. They're too big for us. But if God is for us, who can be against us? And so they look down and Balak, the king of Moab, says, we need to bring in the big guns. Now, we live in a secular age and a materialist age. And so if you're going to bring out the full force of a nation, you, you, know, you bring out your money, you bring out your military, you, know, you bring out your technology. But back in this day, I mean, they could already see. Israel has already won three battles. We looked at this last week. God has given them three victories. And these people say there's nothing that we can do physically to defeat them if we're going to bring out the big guns we need to bring out the spiritual guns this is still in a time and still amongst nations that even though they're not believers in israel's god they believe we need to bring out the spiritual ammunition so they send far away far to the northeast way outside of this area to this notorious false prophet pagan prophet by the name of balaam that's who balaam is you, you get confused in this story. You might think he's one of Israel's prophets, but he's not. Otherwise, he'd be down with them. He is a pagan false prophet, and he's well-known all over the lands. And here you get the big setup to this story because here is this guy that he seems to be an expert on world religions, and he knows all the different gods, and he is the one that has control. You know, if you really want to bless to be blessed or to be, have someone curse, this is the guy you bring in. And so this is the setup to the joke. Balak says to Balaam, now come and put a curse on these people for I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. This is the big setup line to the joke. Because if you've been following the story back from Genesis, what does that sound like? God speaks to Abraham back before there even was an Israel. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and I will bless all those who bless you, and I will curse all those who curse you. Now Balak says to the pagan prophet, if you bless us, we'll be blessed. If you curse them, then they will be cursed. We've set up this big showdown between the gods of the nations and the pagan prophets and the God of Israel. So now this story is going to be told in two halves. And what you need to understand is the first half of the story, what was reflected in the first reading, has everything to do with what happens in the second half of the story. The first scene mirrors exactly the second scene, and once you work that out, you're in on the joke. So if we can just go to our next slide. Here is scene one, and it's told in three acts, or it's told at three different sites. So, Balak summons Balaam in the first part of our reading. He sends some messengers up. He says, we need you to come and put a curse on these people, the Israelites. Balaam says to himself, oh, the Israelites, they have that God, Yahweh, the great I am. Okay, well, I'll go and summon him up. 
and I'll have a word with him, and I'll see what we can do. So Balaam goes and summons up God, and guess what? Israel's God appears to this pagan prophet. He said, what do you hear? What do you want? And he said, well, these people have called me to go and put a curse on the Israelites. Keep in mind, back in the day, the way that you did things is you threw money at it, just like you do today. People could be manipulated and gods could be manipulated. The gods of the nations were much like people. You threw enough money at it. You know, what can we do? What deal can we work out here? But the God of Israel says, I've blessed these people, so you're not going to curse them. Send these people packing. So, scene one, Balaam sends Moab's officials, uh, messengers back and says, I can't do anything to help you. Balak hears about this, and so we get scene two. Balak says, well, we just need to throw better people and more money at it, because if you get high officials and more money, we'll get our way. You know, there's nothing in the world that can't be bought, right? That's what people are taught. So he sends his better officials, and he sends a bunch more money. Balak says to Balaam, come on, you know, I can make you a very, very rich man. Just do what I have to say. Balaam says, well, I better go and talk to Israel's God again, the great I am. Got some more money, some higher officials. See if we can kind of turn things around. So God starts to toy with them a little bit, and he says, well, they seem very insistent, these Moabites. I'll tell you what, this time I'm going to let you go with them, but you will only do and say the words that I give you. The words that I put in your mouth, you pagan foolish prophet, those are the words that, you know, they're the only words that you are to speak. So Balaam agrees and he goes back and tells the people. And so now we get scene three, which is the famous donkey scene. You know, back before Shrek's talking donkey, this was the original talking donkey. So now here you have Balaam and he's following these officials back to go and put a curse on the Israelites. And lo and behold, God's angel appears before him. But guess what? The silly, stubborn donkey can see God's angel, but the silly, blind, pagan prophet cannot. The dumb ass has got more spiritual insight than the great pagan prophet. And, and I want to kind of use this term because I came out of the United States and, you know, if you watch movies, you know, calling someone a dumbass, it might actually sound like a, you know, a naughty thing, but, but this is where it actually originally comes from. If you have worked around donkeys before, I have watched people who own donkeys. I've watched, you know, a young child sit and trade kicks with a donkey because the donkey bucks them off, they try to get back on, the donkey kicks again and the kid kicks back and the rule with the donkey is you don't let them out stubborn you because otherwise they win and you lose you've got to show them who's boss they are known for being stubborn and silly creatures but in this case the donkey can see everything but the great spiritual leader cannot so in the first case donkey's going along sees god's angel and steers off into the field to go around it so, donkey owner does what donkey owners do, gets his stick and starts to beat the donkey. You know, you silly donkey, you need to do what I tell you to do. 
donkey makes a beeline around the angel. The angel reappears, this time in a vineyard where there are these narrow walls separating the vineyard. And this time the donkey sees the angel and says, I've got to get around this angel with a drawn sword. So he moves across to one of the walls and he crushes Balaam's foot on the side. And you can imagine there's probably a bit of swearing going on. And again, he gets off and gets his stick and he beats the donkey. You stupid donkey, don't you understand anything? What are you doing? And then finally, the third time, the angel appears in a spot, we're told, where it's impossible for the donkey to go one way or another. So the donkey just plonks itself down and sits there. And so Balaam gets, off, gets his stick for the third time and begins to you know, beat and swear at this donkey. And you stupid donkey, you're making a fool of me. And God opens the donkey's mouth to speak. Now, I remember when I was at Bible college and we had this guy in our class and he always asked the question that everyone wanted to ask but they were too afraid. And so he raises his hand at this stage and he goes, sir, what do you think the donkey was thinking? Like, was he thinking, oh, wow, I can speak and... You know, I remember my professor saying, you're, you're asking the wrong question. We actually don't know what the other people standing around Balaam would have seen. I mean, maybe God has given him a vision, and he's seen all of these things happening, but all of the people around him are seen as a donkey going, hee-haw, hee-haw, and him kicking and going, why are you making a fool of me? Or maybe because we know there's an angel there, the angel acts like a ventriloquist and suddenly the angel's words are coming out of the donkey's mouth. Or maybe God actually just sticks words in the donkey's mouth. But the big point is, is that God can speak and declare his word and will even through a silly, stubborn, stupid ass. And if you get that, then you start getting in on the joke of the rest of the story. And so the donkey, using God's word, starts to reason with the silly, stupid prophet. Why are you beating me? I've been your donkey. I've been faithful for all these years. Why are you giving me a bad time? And then suddenly Balaam's eyes are opened and he sees the angel. And the angel says, one of you has sense because if you would have come any closer to me, I would have killed you. You are on a reckless path. Keep in mind, if you're wondering about Balaam, he keeps cropping up in the Bible. He crops up later on in the book of Numbers, and he's talked about in the New Testament as a prototype of a false prophet and as someone who eventually does, is successful in leading Israel astray. He is a prophet for hire, and whatever he says, he's going to do whatever is most convenient for him. Now God has tried to make his point utterly clear. And so he sends him on his way again, and he says, Again, Balaam, only do what I tell you to do, only say what I tell you to say. And I went back and counted, and it's sort of hard because sometimes it's repeated in the same sentence, but at least ten times God makes it very clear. Balaam, I am constraining you. You will only say the words that I put into your mouth. You will only do the things that I tell you to do. So now if we move to our next slide, we get to the next scene. And again, there's going to be three acts. There's going to be three different sites. And now King Balak has got Balaam there again, and he's going to keep driving Balaam along and saying, come on, you silly, stupid man, do what I tell you to do. 
and God is going to put his words into the mouth of a silly, stupid ass so that it only can say what God gives Balaam to say. And so, at sight one, Balaam goes, knowing who God is, he offers seven altars. Remember in the Bible, seven is a holy number, and he offers animals in in accordance with the law of Moses. And he says, this is our chance to manipulate it because this is what you do with the gods. You know, you give them what you want and you get what you want. But he goes to the first site and all of the officials are standing there around and Balaam opens his mouth but by the Holy Spirit. God says, how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has? has denounced. And you can kind of imagine Balak going, come on, no, no, you silly, stupid ass. Well, I'll tell you what, let's go to the next site. Maybe there we can overcome God. And so he takes them to a next site. And again, Balaam sets up seven more altars and they burn more sacrifices. And now, okay, now, Balaam, go and curse these people. And this time, Balaam utters, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? One of the great verses of the Bible, one well worth memorizing. God is not a human that he should change his mind when he speaks, he acts. When he promises, he fulfills. In other words, you can throw as much money and manipulation of this as you want. I cannot change the will of God. So again, you know, Balak, come on, you silly, stupid man. Let's go to a third site. Maybe God will do your will from there. And so finally, they go to the third site, you know, and we remember the donkey encountered God three different times. So now these donkeys are going to encounter God three different times. And Balaam says, Israel's king will be greater than Agag, the, the, the kings of the nations, and their kingdom will be exalted. So if we can just go to our next slide, you know, we're getting very near to the punchline of the joke. We go back to what was said at the beginning of the reading. Balak says to Balaam, now come and put a curse on these people, for I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. Now we've come a few chapters later, and Balak is angry. His anger burns against Balaam and he strikes his hands together and he says to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies. Instead, you have blessed them three times. This silly, pagan, false prophet there in the midst of the nations while Israel is down below in the plains completely unaware of what's going on and carrying out their own stubbornness God is up in the hills reaffirming his blessing, who he is and his plans for Israel and his great plan of salvation is being proclaimed to the nations through the mouth of a silly, stupid ass of a man. But that's not where it's going to finish because it's just sort of like, you know, if you need to pile humor upon humor, there's been seven altars and seven sacrifices. And so in that third site, Balaam won't stop there. And he says, you know, now through the Holy Spirit, he opens his mouth and he continues on to speak a number of more oracles. So he, the total number of prophetic utterances comes to seven. And if we can just go to the next one. Part of what he says is, 
Here's something else I want to say to you, Balak. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. He's speaking to someone that's out there that he hasn't seen yet. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down the sons of Sheth. He speaks of another king and another kingdom who will overcome the nations. Now, what's interesting about this is that in the first place, this prophecy probably refers to King David, who comes around about 400 years later, and he becomes Israel's first united king, and he does begin to crush these different nations that are warring against Israel. But what's interesting is that in David's time, fast-forwarding 400 years, David makes another prophetic utterance, and it's the one that we began our sermon today with. If we can just go to the next slide. David writes this, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one and against his Messiah. Let's break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. If we can just go to our next slide. Later on in the psalm, he says, This anointed one, this son of God, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. David says, sure, I'm the king of Israel, but there'll be another son of David, another son of God, and you need to make peace with him. He is the great savior of the whole world. So what do we do with a story like this? Um, you know, sometimes if we're reading through a, a section of the Bible like the Beatitudes, you know, it says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit and we need to learn to be more humble or, you know, we need to learn to be more giving to the poor or whatever and we need to change our attitude. Books like the book of Numbers are, are exhortations. They were there to encourage the people in the wilderness and they were also there to encourage Israel as they faced other trials and tribulations after them. They remind Israel of who God is and that even when we can't see what he's doing, God is working on our behalf and we can continue to trust him. Later on in the New Testament, if we can just go to our next slide, Paul gives this great utterance from Romans 8. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And that's really the point of all of this. We live in this day and age where we're watching our culture and our society becoming less Christian and less sympathetic toward Christians. We watch moves that are being made by the government and we're watching the way the world is going and we can start feeling outnumbered and we can start feeling like the world is against us and they're bigger than us and they're more powerful than us and oh dear, what is going to happen to us? How do I live as a Christian? How do we survive as a Christian church? 
But Paul in Romans 8, if I can just read to you a little bit more from 8, verse 38, he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's sing our song of response together.